Three stories of the Arab awakening today, Friday, May 31st. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. A Muslim convert from Flint, Michigan, is killed in Syria. Syrian officials say she was fighting for the rebels, but her family tells the media they don't buy it. They said that there was really no outward signs that she might be looking to fight for anybody, let alone uh, the resistance in Syria. Also, a reporter goes home to Egypt two years after the revolution there. She finds a country in crisis, but also a younger generation willing to try and fix things. To speak to all these young people now who stand up to authority, who hold them to account, to who basically say, look, you will not get away with whatever it is that you do because we will keep you in check was so inspiring. Plus, rappers from the Middle East inspired by the Arab Spring. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. There have been lots of reports of the numbers of Europeans heading to Syria to fight in the conflict there, mostly for the opposition to President Bashar al-Assad. Some have been killed when they go. Today, though, news that an American woman from Michigan has died in Syria. Nicole Mansfield was reportedly killed as she fought alongside opposition forces. Syrian TV showed images of Mansfield's passport and driver's license. Quinn Kleinfelter is senior news editor with Public Radio in Detroit. He joins me now to help Help us out with the details on this story. So, Quinn, uh, where did Nicole Mansfield come from? From Detroit? She was from Flint, uh, from an area a little bit, uh, a couple hours by car north of Detroit. Uh, Similar conditions in terms of the economic situation, the dependence on the automobile, uh, a kind of a gritty area. But um, she seems, Nicole Mansfield, to have taken a somewhat different path than uh, the typical person, perhaps, in Flint. Uh, According to uh, her relatives, she had uh, married an uh, Arab immigrant a number of years ago, divorced, but during that time had converted to Islam and uh, had been begin to making trips to Dubai for uh, her relatives, say, for religious purposes. Uh, It's a bit conflicting as uh, things unfold at this moment, but uh, it sounds as if she may have moved to Dubai for some time. Uh, But uh, her aunts, her grandparents, uh, people that uh, knew her very well in the Flint area are are not only shocked and saddened by by the uh, fatal situation that they they find their uh, relative in now, uh, but they're also a bit surprised. They said that there was really no outward signs that she might be looking to fight for anybody, let alone uh, the resistance in Syria. So her family apparently lost touch with her. Do they have any sense at all about why she went to Syria? Even when did she go? Uh, Syria, really, no. I mean, they talk about Dubai and that uh, anywhere within the last two, three years that uh, she had been making some trips, again, for supposedly religious purposes. Uh, at, at the same time, um, it's not that much of a jaunt, uh, you know, to get to Syria if you were in that area. And many of the reports that are coming out now are for, um, from some of the observers that are actually in the region around Syria and from Syrian officials themselves. And they are basically tying her to the rebel movement. And in fact, uh, not even necessarily the, the Free Syrian Army, 
but the more radical opposition, the Islamist militias, uh, such as those that are affiliated with al-Qaeda. Mm. And they, uh, again, this is all uh, unconfirmed and coming from official Syrian sources. Uh, but that's what they're saying, is that uh, this woman apparently, they say, w- was fighting on behalf of the al-Qaeda affiliate. How did, I mean, how is the Syrian government kind of casting her as a, as a foreign fighter trying to do harm against Syria? Exactly. Uh, in fact, they say that uh, they were in a car in a, in a black VW, three people, and that uh, Mansfield was one of them and that they were ambushed as they were heading towards some military bases. Uh, the TV video showed a bullet-riddled car, uh, three bodies that were laid out on the ground. Um, they, they had collected uh, things like weapons, Kalashnikov rifles, a computer, a hand-drawn map of a government facility, uh, a flag that belongs to one of the al-Qaeda affiliates, which, again, one wonders if you would be taking a flag if you're working for al-Qaeda. Mm. Uh, but this was things that the government had assembled there by the, the bodies themselves. There's also reports from Syrian officials that uh, at least one or two people in this car were throwing hand grenades and that that was what triggered the uh, uh, massive response which left them dead. Again, uh, unfolding as we speak in many ways and unconfirmed, and a lot of the uh, perhaps more impartial observers uh, have not really been able to pin it down as yet. On this side, it's been reported that the FBI has interviewed uh, Mansfield's family. What's known? What do you know about the investigation so far? It's a typical thing uh, when something like this happens because in, in a, a number of ways, if someone is actually fighting with the resistance in Syria, they could be breaking U.S. law. At this point, obviously, if it's a fatality involving Ms. Mansfield, there, there's nothing to arrest. But uh, in terms of, of her motivations or how she would have actually wound up from uh, if she was living in Dubai to working for anyone fighting in Syria, uh, again, remains unclear. Quinn Kleinfelter, senior news editor with Public Radio in Detroit. Thanks for your time. Thank you. The ideals of the Arab Spring have attracted people from all around the globe. Some have gone to support a rebellion, as Nicole Mansfield may have done in Syria. Others have traveled to countries like Egypt, Libya, and Tunisia full of hope, hope that in places where revolutions overthrew dictators, society would be different and democracy would flourish. The BBC's Shaima Khalil went back to Egypt, the country of her birth. She returned to her hometown of Alexandria to see what life there is like two years after Egypt's revolution. Shaima Khalil produced a series of documentaries getting at the state of things in a way few journalists have. Today and next week, we'll be hearing bits from that series, Egypt's Challenge, starting with this scene. This is all I need to tell me I'm in Alexandria. I'm looking at six baskets of freshly caught fish and shrimps and crabs, and you could just smell the salty water on them. This reminds me of my grandmother's house because I remember Fridays where my father used to come with baskets just like this one, full of shrimp and squid and and crabs, and my grandmother would have this huge pot where she'd cook the crab, and the whole house, the whole neighborhood would smell of freshly cooked crab. And that's how Shima introduces us to her home of Alexandria. And Shima, I've never been there, but I can smell the seafood as you describe the scene. <laughs> it's amazing. It is It is very, very hard to escape, Marco. It's, it's this thing that is just all-consuming. And, of course, Alexandria, being a coastal town, is very known for its fresh seafood. But I think it's also, I mean, you know, you can hear it in my voice, the excitement, because just looking at these baskets and smelling the fish brought back so many memories of my childhood because, really, Egyptians love their 
food, but Alexandrians love their seafood. Yeah, you sound very excited. So tell us a <laughs> bit about why you chose to go back now to Egypt and what you expected to find. I think that the way that Egypt's been covered in the last two years has been really kind of headline news. So when violence happens, when demonstrations break out outside the presidential palace or Tahrir Square. But, you know, to me, this was my home country going through a very fundamental transition. And what I wanted to do was to kind of really gauge how this transition, how this change was happening, but also just to kind of present a variety of Egyptian voices and a variety of Egyptian locations. Because another thing that I noticed about the coverage of the international media to Egypt was that it's very Cairo-centric. And I just wanted to kind of through this series say, look, you know, it's a vast country. So many different places have all experienced the revolution in different ways. And here's what they have to say. Well, we'll hear some of those voices today and next week. Let's start off, though, with somebody in your own family. Uh, Your cousin Heba voted for Mohamed Morsi. She (laughs) had high hopes, uh, but now she's disappointed. So let's listen to what she has to say. Everyone supported him, including all the revolutionary powers and all the youth. So when he makes the right decisions, people support him, even when they are not from the Muslim Brotherhoods. I don't know why did he drift away from this path. I guess this is because he wants to empower the Muslim Brotherhoods. It's about their own benefits, not about Egypt's benefits. This is the turning point for us. You know, there is a nickname for those who voted for Morsi, the the lemon squeezers, that we we Mm. squeeze lemon over things that we don't like their taste. We are the lemon squeezers. So Heba is one of the lemon squeezers. How bad is life? (laughs) That's a great phrase. How bad is life for these lemon squeezers these days? You know, I I, I think the worst thing for the lemon squeezers is the sense of disappointment and the sense of feeling cheated almost because, you know, there was a, a very stark moment really during the elections when basically Egyptians were confronted with either someone from the Muslim Brotherhood or someone who served under Hosni Mubarak. And for many of those who went out to Tahrir Square, that was just going to be impossible. It just worked against everything they had hoped for. So the only person they had to turn to was Mohamed Morsi. And basically the lemon squeezer is is an expression saying, do you know what? You're not really our first choice or our second choice, but you're kind of our only choice at the moment. And we're, you know, we're kind of counting on you to step up here. And unfortunately, he didn't. Unfortunately, on so many occasions, Marco, he's proved to be incompetent of leading the country out of this crisis. And I think the problem really is with the lemon squeezers and Egyptians at the moment is that Egypt is no longer a country in a transitional phase. I think Egypt is a country that is in a crisis and it doesn't have the proper leadership to lead it out of that crisis. Well, just like here, if you're squeezing lemons, you're trying to make the best out of a bad thing. Exactly. Yeah. Shaima, you also speak with some of the new leaders in Egypt. And I was struck by how forthcoming the Muslim Brotherhood spokesman was with you. He admits to his party buying votes by making food donations. Let's hear that. It's a race. Don't blame the Muslim Brotherhood or the uh, Salafist people that they provide the poor people what they need. Blame yourself why you don't do the same. And you are more rich than the Muslim Brotherhood. Go and do it, and we will see the results. So, Shaima, if I'm not mistaken, he was saying that we bought votes better than the other guys? Well, yeah, not in so many words, but that was essentially it. I mean, the the question to him really was, look, you know, the fact is people vote for you not because you have a vision, not because you have a, a strategy. It's because you just provide services. And he said, well, yes, we provide services. And if people want to provide more services, you know, let them go ahead. But I mean, one thing that it reflects, obviously, is how these people get votes. But I, I also think that it just reflects a very 
primal, basic political process. People are still getting to grips with how, you know, with political process, with why is it that you go out and vote for someone. For many Egyptians at the moment, because of the dire economic circumstances, it's the person that provides the services. It's the person that you can turn to when you're in a crisis who can be there for you. Were there things that you found that gave you hope? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Do you know, this sense of empowerment of young people, it never, ever ceases to amaze me only because, you know, I've grown up in Egypt. I was a teenager in Egypt and never in my time growing up there had I thought of changing the reality of the country where I lived. Never had I thought that I could be an agent of change. I could be an agent for this country to to be better. I just thought, you know what? The president's name is Hosni Mubarak. His son's name is Gamal Mubarak. He's probably going to be the next president. And that's that. And to speak to all these young people now who stand up to authority, who hold them to account, to who basically say, look, you will not get away with whatever it is that you do, because we will keep you in check was so inspiring. And you see it on so many levels. But, you know, I would say that the prospects for a young person in Egypt aren't very high. And and, and I must say, you know, there are people that said, you know, we'll stay This is going to get better. And other people have said, you know what? We've done our bit. I think we should leave. So, you know, you get a mixture of opinion. So the people who say stay, things will get better, do they kind of see that revolutions are always a little unstable in the beginning? And eventually, if you work hard enough, things might get better. Is that their hope? Yeah, I think what what they're doing is they're kind of working through their disappointment. I think that they have expected or wanted things to change a lot faster for them. And that hasn't happened. But I think that many realize that there have been mistakes on the part of the revolutionaries. They were in revolutionary mode for too long and they didn't engage in the political process as as much as they should have. And I think now they're kind of recalculating their steps. But ultimately, I think everybody recognizes that what has been achieved is huge. And, you know, one of my really good friends, a young journalist, said, look, you have to imagine this. A couple of years ago, during the Mubarak time, when we used to just assemble kind of a a bunch of us, we knew that we weren't going to go home that day. We have toppled this regime. Mm. And we just need to keep reminding ourselves that this is what we were able to do. Powerful stuff. Well, we'll hear more from your series next week. And listeners, you can hear all six 30-minute episodes of Shaima Khalil's documentary series, Egypt's Challenge. We've got a link to them at theworld.org. Shaima, thank you very much. Thanks, Marco. Thanks for having me. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. A dark chapter in the history of Brazil came to light recently. A lost report about abuses suffered by Brazil's indigenous people has been located by human rights campaigners. The 1967 document is known as the Figueiredo Report, named after the lead investigator of the commission that created it. And it details decades of abuse and exploitation by the very agency that was supposed to protect the Indians of the Amazon and other regions of Brazil. It's full of the most horrific crimes against Brazil's indigenous peoples. That's Fiona Watson, research and campaigns director for Survival International, an organization dedicated to protecting the world's isolated peoples. Survival was created in direct response to Figueiredo's findings. It's a massive list. Um, He documents 
poisoning of peoples with arsenic atrocities such as what happened to the Sintalaga Indians where rubber barons hired a plane, flew over their village and threw dynamite sticks into it and then afterwards the survivors were killed uh, by hand by people who walked through the forest to kill them. People were poisoned, the Tapayuna tribe were poisoned with arsenic. It's just an endless catalogue and some of the language that Figueredo uses is, is really strong. He says the Indian Protection Service, the very body in charge of protecting and upholding indigenous rights had degenerated to the point of exterminating Indians. He talks about whole tribes disappearing. Fiona, you've spent decades uh, campaigning for the indigenous people of Brazil. You, You make frequent visits there and you meet with them. Do they still talk about those times? And what do they say? Well, yes. I mean, some of the old people I've talked to, a a lot of people remember the time before they say the white people arrived when they lived in relative peace. These are people probably who weren't exposed in the same way that many of the tribes that Figueredo talks about. But I've also interviewed shamans and old people who do talk about the impact of that very brutal contact, first contacts with national society. I can remember, for example, talking to one Makushi woman in the north of the Amazon whose lands uh, since the sort of 40s and 50s were invaded by cattle ranchers telling me, uh, and with tears in her eyes, how she was made to walk over hot coals as punishment by the rancher who'd stolen her land. And she had been reduced to sort of a semi-slave um, working on the land that once belonged to her people. Uh, that is still very much alive in the old people's memories. So, Fiona, tell us how this report just came back in the news now. Well, it's very interesting because when the report was published, the military dictatorship called a press conference. A lot of the world's media went there and they published the report thinking that because most of the crimes had happened before dictatorship, in some way this would make them look good. Um, It completely backfired. There was a huge public outcry about what had happened and people demanding justice for these crimes. And the report mysteriously disappeared. In other words, it had been disappeared because it was so uh, hot, if you like. It was so catalogued, such outrageous crimes. And then somebody who is researching, doing some research work for Brazil's Truth Commission, was in the Indian Museum in Rio, in the basement. He saw some dusty box, opened them up, and he found a copy of the Figueiredo report. So it was completely by chance. And I think it is the only copy. It's the original copy. Uh, It's got his signature on it. So, Fiona, what do you hope will come of the discovery of the Figueiredo report? Well, I hope that firstly, people will remember these crimes. And I hope that secondly, while people will perhaps, in a way, celebrate the fact that from this deeply dark period of Brazil's history, indigenous peoples have survived. They're extremely resilient. Uh, The population now is 850,000. But I also hope that they will take it as a warning that although things have improved a lot since those days, there are still massive challenges and there are still terrible human rights violations happening in Brazil and I do hope that people will stand by Indigenous peoples both within Brazil and internationally and support them in this struggle. Fiona Watson, Research and Campaigns Director for Survival International. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) 
Graffiti is an Italian word. It means little scratches, as in the way many people used to leave their mark. These days, it's spray paint. And in Germany, where it's a big problem, the cost of cleaning up the graffiti, just along the nation's railroad tracks, runs about $10 million a year. That's according to Germany's national railway, Deutsche Bahn. It reports that it had 14,000 incidents of graffiti last year alone. Deutsche Bahn says they're not going to take it anymore. They're going to deploy anti-graffiti drones. Kimo Quaintance teaches international relations at the University of the German Armed Forces in Munich. So what do we know about what kind of drones the railway plans to use? Well, Deutsche Bahn is, uh, they, they seem to have purchased some mid-level consumer drones that uh, they cost about 60,000 euro apiece. And these are drones that could fly for about 90 minutes, uh, take photographs or have camera views with uh, normal cameras or infrared cameras. The idea being that they would spot people who are coming into the train yards to tag trains or to, to write on walls. These are not high-level uh, military drones like you'd find in Iraq. Um, so, you know, much more this emerging consumer-level drone. How have Germans reacted to the anti-graffiti drones? Is there already concern that these drones will be looking for stuff other than graffiti? Yeah, there's always there's always a lot of skepticism in Germany whenever the state takes on more power to uh, to you know, operate any kind of surveillance platform or to observe people, and the fear I think for most Germans isn't that uh, you know this system would be abused at the beginning, but that if it becomes effective and more technology creeps in, you you have this this incremental effect where all right we can use it now to to spot people now could we match it to a photo database or you know, could you sort of get this creeping incrementalism that uh, increases the capability of the surveillance powers of the state? I mean, drones and surveillance cameras are increasingly becoming a, a fact of life here in the U.S. Do, yeah. do you think these uh, anti-graffiti drones in Germany indicate that Germany's on the same path? No, Germany's going to follow a different path because the privacy laws are far more restrictive. Because there's almost nowhere, there, there, there's hardly anywhere for anyone to fly the drones legally. Uh, you know, anytime you'd have a camera that would look at a private property or could see someone walking down the street, that could be considered an invasion of privacy. I gather you offer a course or offered a course on how to build cheap surveillance drones? No, what I, what I offered is I offered an international politics course that was focused on the democratization of technology. And as part of that course, what I had my students do as a class project is I had them develop and build a drone that would be able to fly autonomously and hack into Wi-Fi networks. Part of the lesson for them was to realize how accessible this technology is um, and how easy it is to do things that just a few years ago were very James Bond high tech. That sounds like a rather subversive course. So were you actually allowed to teach it? A lot of these things I, I go I go by the principle of, you know, it's better to ask for, for you know, beg for forgiveness than ask for permission. So <laughs> I taught them lock picking. Uh, you know, we did all sorts really? of things that oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because I want them to have this view of systems. Um, that they don't cherish a system just because someone says it's secure, that they can really start to get their heads around it the way that hackers do. My view is that this is an area that's evolving so quickly and is going to become so central to the, our discussions about warfare or civil liberties that you really need to have students get their hands on it so that they can start to ask their own questions based on their own experience of developing these capabilities themselves. Kim Acquaintance teaches international relations at the University of the German Armed Forces in Munich. Thanks for speaking with us, Kimo. Great. Thank you, Marco. It's The World from PRI.
I'm Marco Werman. Coming up on The World, Russian scientists say they've unearthed a woolly mammoth so well-preserved that it actually bled, and that makes it unique. Most of the other mummified remains, the, the meat is sort of freeze-dried, and it would look like very old jerky. There'd be no softness left to it. It'd be, be rock-hard and very dry. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who are making a difference in their communities. Learn how nonprofit organizations may earn a $20,000 grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. We haven't heard from the Occupy movement in a while, but today people are marching, chanting, sitting in. Just not on Wall Street, though. These Occupy demonstrators are in Istanbul, Turkey. They're chanting, shoulder to shoulder, we're marching against fascism. The protesters are angry about plans to destroy the city's Taksim Park to build a shopping mall. Dalia Mortada is a freelance journalist in Istanbul. She lives about 10 minutes from the park and has been following the action since Tuesday when local police first clashed with protesters. So, Dalia, you were outside earlier to see what the situation's like. What's the latest? Well, I just came back from out there, and the crowd has gotten a lot bigger now that people aren't in work anymore. Uh, And it's just, you know, a mass of people marching towards the square. The police are keeping the protesters out of the square, and they're chanting many different chants, one of which you just heard. But now they're actually chanting for Recep Tayyip Erdogan's resignation, which actually I don't think... The prime minister, yes. And so they're chanting for his resignation, and they're banging on... A lot of the stores have closed their doors, and so they're banging on the doors to create more sound. And uh, do you know if anyone was injured? Because it sounds pretty chaotic. Yeah, there are a lot of injuries. Uh, I haven't heard of any deaths yet, but there are a lot of injuries, including one politician from the Peace and Democratic Party. He was hit with a tear gas canister. So demands that uh, Prime Minister Erdogan step down. I mean, what makes his park so important and significant that people are ready to face tear gas and ask for the prime minister to leave to save this park from destruction. This is actually a lot more than the park. The park is what triggered it, and the only green space in the city, and people do hold it dear. But this is a culmination of a lot of different construction projects that are coming into Istanbul, a lot of people being worried about the destruction of Istanbul's overall green space. The city is very big, and it continues to grow. It's also a response to a lot of police brutality that has taken place in the last month or so. On May 1st, there was international coverage of the Labor Day protests and the subsequent, you know, police response. And since then, there has been regular tear gassing of protests on this main stretch. I mean, everything from green space to police brutality, it sounds like it's an all-inclusive protest. That's what it's turning out to be. They even have football fans, sorry, the soccer fans here are quite active as soccer fans, but they've even joined in on the protest as representatives of their team and of their fan base. Social media played such a big role in the Occupy protests. Is it playing any role with these protests in Istanbul? Yes. Um, it looks like the, the protests have gotten so big thanks to social media. Uh, some of the photos that were released from Tuesday actually are what moved people to come on, out on Wednesday. And the photos that were released on Wednesday of police tear gassing protesters, protesters, you know, h- hanging onto trees, that also inspired people to come out. Have, have these protests had any impact on, on what might come of this park? 
Uh, no. The prime minister came out in a press conference and basically said, we have made up our minds. We are continuing with the Taksim project. And that's basically been the word. Apparently, there have been lots of protests at Taksim Square before. Does it hold kind of a, that kind of significance for, for Turks in the same way that Tahrir Square does for, for Egyptians? That's exactly what Taksim Square is. And actually, what's happened in the last month is that, you know, the masses are taking to the street and they're coming to Taksim and they're coming to Istiklal and they're greeted with tear gas and water cannons and they come back and they continue to come back. And that's what we're seeing today is these people continue to come back. Dalia Mortada, freelance journalist in Istanbul. Thanks for giving us the update here. Thank you. Also in Turkey, there's an Islamic creationist guru trying to spread the message that Charles Darwin is responsible for much of the evil in the world, and he has his own satellite TV channel. He also wants to counter Western stereotypes and prejudices about Islam and Muslims, and to do this, he's creating programming that you're unlikely to see in any other Muslim nation. Matthew Brunwasser reports from Istanbul. Creationist guru Adnan Oktar is a regular fixture on his TV channel A9 for hours and hours day after day. Today, as he often does, Oktar is talking about one of his many exhibitions of fossils that he says disproves evolution. (laughs) Oktar and his cult-like organization have been in the Turkish media space for decades. But only last year did he deploy his new weapon in the battle against Darwinism. (laughs) A flock of ostensibly attractive, curvy young women. The kittens, as he calls them, call him master and generally guffaw at the right moments and nod their heads in agreement with whatever he says. Some of the women have their own programs, in which they also debunk evolution, among other things. The spectacle has attracted attention beyond the creationist community. Turkish artist Pinar Demirda describes herself as a visual narrator of extreme happenings. She says she finds herself drawn to Oktar's kittens, who look eerily as though they were all created in a Turkish Barbie factory. They have almost the same proportion of assets, if I may say, and also the same clothing, the same hair, almost the same makeup, posture, and like a hip gestures. Demirda calls the spectacle a sensation overload, skillfully combining Islam, sexual objectification, demagoguery, and Versace. And I believe his work is to master media, especially Turkish media, and he knows very well What attracts Turkish people? What makes them talk? What makes them change their minds? And what entertains them? Indeed, when Oktar and his voluptuous Ed McMahons aren't trying to rid the world of Darwinism and radical Islam, they have fun too. Like when they dance to the latest hits without getting out of their chairs. A9 also produces English language programs to spread its message beyond Turkey. The discussions cover big subjects like religion and politics, but the chats aim to foster goodwill rather than ask tough questions, according to Jenna Krajewski. She's an American journalist who was a guest on the show. When Krajewski was picked up, two attractive, charming A9 employees were in the car. One was a microbiologist and the other an economist. They both had advanced degrees, very smart women, spoke 
fluent English. I asked them the title of the show, and they said it's called Science, colon, From Creation to End Times. And that's when I knew that I was really in for something interesting. Welcome to another episode of Building Bridges. Today we have a very sweet, very distinguished guest with us. The studio has ornate furniture and a backdrop of London. The host's heavy makeup and tight clothing might not jibe well with the values of Western feminism. But Krajewski says the women earnestly believe they are making the world a better place. They're very concerned with how Westerners perceive Muslims, Muslim women and Muslim Turkish women specifically. And in this way, I think they feel like by dressing the way that they do and appearing the way that they do, they uh, project a really revolutionary image of Muslim women to the West. At A9, I was only able to meet Oktar Babuna, a medical doctor and longtime collaborator of Adnan Oktar. He says the women joined the team to counter the fiction created by radical Islamists and bigots that Muslim women should be hidden from public life. In the real Islam, there is no such thing. If you look at the Quran, we see women are, like Allah says, they are flowers. It's the beauty of this world. Several months and many, many Facebook messages later, the ladies agreed to speak to me, but only via Skype. I spoke with Eje Kolch from Building Bridges. We are trying to show that Islam is a religion of peace, Islam is a religion of love, and Islam is very modern. People, are, people should be modern, people should be good-looking, people should be very elegant. By any Quranic interpretation, it's hard to see the ladies of A9 reaching the airwaves of other Muslim countries, like Pakistan or Saudi Arabia. Turkey clearly isn't the only place where sex sells, but it may be the only country in the world where it's used to teach Islamic doctrine and encourage morality. For The World, I'm Matthew Brunwasser in Istanbul. Wild. You really have to see the women of A9TV to appreciate how they all share certain attributes. Their pictures are at theworld.org. Let's move on now. Ultra quick geo-quiz today. We want you to name a remote Russian city. It's in Siberia on the banks of the Lena River, which flows north into the Arctic Ocean. The city's home to a couple of interesting museums. One is devoted to permafrost and the other to woolly mammoths. Okay, there's no waiting for the answer. It's Yakutsk. The director of the Woolly Mammoth Museum in Yakutsk led a team that made an interesting discovery recently. They found a woolly mammoth carcass on a remote Siberian island. Parts of the 10,000-year-old animal were so well-preserved that when the scientists exposed them to air, blood ran out which led to speculation about cloning this mammoth, you know, Jurassic Park style. We decided to get an expert opinion from Scott Elias. He's a specialist in the reconstruction of paleo environments at the University of London. Well, there's a reason Jurassic Park was in the fiction department of your bookstore. (laughs) Uh, I mean, Michael Crichton was good at writing things that were almost believable because they were right on the edge of doable science. But this is this remains right on the edge of doable science. I, I don't think it's possible. In fact, the claim that having the blood makes all the difference, mm. not actually pertinent because if you think about, okay, the blood's been frozen for, let's say, twelve or 15,000 years. Blood cells don't like being frozen. <laughs> the freezing and thawing is likely to have broken the cell walls down. So it may look like blood, but in terms of the integrity of the, the tissue sample, you're much better off dealing with muscle tissue or preferably bone marrow. Well, let's settle then on the nonfiction of this story, the facts. Uh, first of all, what was your reaction when you heard the news? 
the discovery is fascinating. It's it's a great discovery. It's not completely unique. There have been a lot of pieces and even up to full woolly mammoths carcasses found in northern Siberia. And in fact, it's a, it's a phenomenon that's increasing right now because the, the permafrost is melting. And these things are all trapped in the permafrost. So when but, it melts... But it do many of them out. have free-flowing blood like this? Uh, no. I think that's possibly a first. The, the Russian scientists have claimed this is the case, that this meat is still pink and the blood flowed freely from this mammoth. Do you have any reason to doubt them? No, no, I think that could be. It's, it, it would be quite unusual. Uh, and I think probably the, the reason is that by Ice Age animal standards, this is quite young. So most of the other mummified remains that have been found are more like thirty or 40,000 years old. And this is somewhere between 10 and 15 was what I read. So... It seems like a very long time ago, I know, but it may be only a third or a half of the age of most of the others. Most of the other mummified remains, the the meat is sort of freeze-dried and it would look like very old jerky. There'd be no softness left to it. It'd be rock hard and very dry. So if this is moist tissue with blood still in it, that would be very unusual. What a difference 20,000 years makes. (laughs) Right. And how do you explain it? Because I leave a chicken thigh in the freezer for more than two months and it's got freezer burn. (laughs) How did this mammoth meat survive (laughs) so long in such pristine shape? Most of these things, as far as we can tell and and the way paleontologists have reconstructed, the animals that get preserved in this sort of mummified state are animals that probably died late in the autumn. Maybe the very first night they were frozen just because the air temperature dropped well below freezing. And then in some form or other, they got covered over by snow and ice or very cold mud crept over their body or some other way that they were then covered from any contact with the air. Because even if they're frozen, most things will thaw out the next summer and then decompose. So there's been no decomposition. That that means that they were immediately sealed from the surface and have been frozen ever since. Now, you indicated something earlier that I find really interesting. Um, People have been finding mammoth carcasses in the tundra for a long time, but now we're hearing more and more about them. What's going on? Well, I think there's several things going on. Russians have actually made a living out of harvesting mammoth ivory going back into the Victorian times and before. Mm. So, in fact, a lot of piano keys, buttons, billiard balls of the 19th century were made from Siberian mammoth ivory. Incredible. <laughs> a little known fact. But uh, so the, the frozen carcasses, I think, are coming to light more simply because there's more people going to that part of the world these days. People are out actively hunting for them now. And like I said, because of the thawing of the permafrost in the north is actually releasing a lot more of this material to the visible eye that's been buried away and frozen for, for millennia. So there's a climate change angle to the story as well. Yeah, yeah, I'm afraid so. Professor Scott Elias at the University of London, thank you very much. My pleasure. No one knows exactly what caused the woolly mammoth to go extinct, overhunting by humans, climate change, maybe both. What we do know is that today, climate change is pushing thousands of species to the brink of extinction. It's also putting tremendous pressure on our food supply. And people are responding by altering the food they grow, how they grow it, and what they eat. On Monday, we here at The World begin a summer-long series on food and climate change called What's for Lunch. It kicks off with a report from Singapore, where an entrepreneur is growing vegetables in a super-efficient indoor vertical farm. Right now, he's just growing cabbage and lettuce, but that might be just the beginning. In the very near future, this technology will spread, and it will uh, start to encompass basic crops like rice, wheat, potatoes, and other root vegetables. 
And then you've got this industrial snowball. The next thing you know, you've got Singapore producing 10, 15, 20, 30 percent of its uh, produce. Maybe someday your own veggies will come from buildings in your city. That's What's for Lunch starting Monday here on The World. And as part of the series, we want to know how climate change is affecting your food choices. Send us pictures of your lunch and explain how environmental concerns affect what's on your plate. Just snap a picture on Instagram and include the hashtag What's for Lunch. That's What's the number four lunch. What's for lunch? I've been having a lot of fun Instagramming my What's for Lunch pics. Check out my latest shot of linguine from Illinois with some smoked salmon from Massachusetts. That's what I'm talking about. Again, just include the hashtag What's for Lunch. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Earlier this week, we told you about a Chinese teenager who had scrawled some graffiti on an ancient relic in Egypt. Remember? Chinese officials and netizens rightfully gave the kid a hard time. But what if the boy was just channeling ancient habits? There's always been graffiti. People who study ancient civilizations say so. So does Monty Python's Life of Brian. Here, Brian's painting something in Latin on a wall, and he's caught by a Roman soldier who tries to make sense of it. Romanes aeon domus. People call Romanes, they go the house. It, it says Romans go home. No, it doesn't. <laughs> What's Latin for Roman? Come on, Okay, so we don't want to turn to Monty Python for historical accuracy, but in ancient societies was graffiti considered vandalism. Chloe Ragazzoli studies ancient graffiti. She's a research fellow in Egyptology at Oxford University. I would say that in ancient Egypt, it was socially accepted and maybe even expected, and it's part of showing off your status in life, where nowadays we see it as a subversive hooliganism attitude. Mm. Did leaders in ancient Egypt kind of encourage graffiti? Well, you have graffiti in pretty official places, a tomb, a temple. So you have the feeling that there were some kind of official, like a privilege, which was uh, granted. And as you say, I mean, it was kind of just an impulse for people who were in a place and they wanted to leave a memory that they were there to say, I was here. But I mean, have you found anything risque that kind of corresponds to contemporary graffiti, foul language, insults? Yeah, absolutely. You find criticism, you find private joke, you find witticism, you even have pornographic graffiti. Like what? Can you give us a a mild example? uh, Yes, a mild example. You will find the drawing, which might be a graffiti of an official in a very official position, and next to it, the same official a drawing by a different person, but the next official bent in two and being penetrated from behind. Uh, by another person. Kind of early early editorial cartoons in a way. Yeah, 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 something like this, you know, having jokes with your mates. So I'm just curious, I mean, as for the writing, not the drawings, but the writing, how was literacy at the time? Could the average ancient Egyptian read what was written in this graffiti? No, absolutely not. And I think that's the mistake we made for a very long time as Egyptologists. We considered this as, you know, secondary inscriptions, not realizing that they had to be made by very high officials because they were those who could write at the time. We considered that maybe 1% of the ancient Egyptian population could read and write. So that's Egypt. I'm just curious, where else in the world have uh, you found ancient graffiti that's kind of surprised you? 
Uh, I would say everywhere I did look. Really? And yes. Any place that doesn't have graffiti? When you don't find them, it's because you don't find a place where they could have been written on. Either the settlements have been destroyed. You know, even in Maya society, obviously, they had graffiti. Do you think graffiti anywhere around the world follows anything thematic? I would say that the main common feature is that it's a social practice. It's something you do to be part of a community. And it's still true nowadays, you know, uh, with graffiti that we see as part of some underground culture and that can be pornographic or transgressive. The people who do it, do it to be part of a group, of a group of naughty boys, if you want. Uh, and in ancient Egypt, in, in Rome, in China, each time it's to claim uh, your belonging to a certain social group. So you do see similar messages no matter where you go around the world? I was there, and I belong to that kind of group. Uh, it's part of identity claiming. I came here as a scribe. In Greece, I came here as a minor. Well, I mean, that's true today, isn't it? I mean, because uh, modern graffiti kind of started in urban areas in the States as, as a way for street gangs to claim their turf. Yeah, absolutely. It's a way to appropriate a place, to claim a place or to redefine a place and you make it your place or the place of a group by inscribing those graffiti. Right. Just like that kid from China who was just there in Luxor saying, I was here. When I saw that, that thing, I was amazed because that's the, the most basic graffiti from ancient Egypt to nowadays. Chloe Ragazzoli is a research fellow in Egyptology at Oxford University. Her specialty is ancient graffiti. Chloe, thanks so much. Thank you. By the way, you can see examples of some pretty old graffiti at theworld.org. I wonder if the ancient Egyptians also liked rap music. All right, perhaps the cultural links between rap and graffiti are only relevant in 1970s New York. But in Egypt today, there's no doubt rap is part of the scene. That's Egyptian Abdullah Minyawi. He is one of a score of rappers and producers from across the Arab world who are featured on Khat Talet. That's the title of a new compilation of Arab rap inspired by the 2011 Arab Spring Uprisings. The subtitle is Third Line, Initiative for the Elevation of Public Awareness. This is conscious rap, opinions that were unleashed and in many cases made possible by public upheaval two years ago. What's fascinating is that many of the featured artists aren't even from places that went through the awakening, Jordan and the Palestinian territories, for example. But let's check out a couple of tracks that stand out from the collection for their musical innovation. Here's Rami GB. On his SoundCloud page, he describes himself as a producer-rapper living in Palestine, broadcasting the truth to the whole world. I like his track Sura, which means picture. I especially love the old Makam piano loop. Rami GB's lyrics are dense. A few impressionistic lines. Select the jail you want me to spend the night in. I'm sure that no one will try to release me. They'll launch a campaign on Facebook for me. Tell Ali not to say my name. Now to Jordan via another great track from Hat Talet. <laughs> This is El Fari, his real name, Tarek Abu Quake. El Fari grieves about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The Moroccan in Jerusalem feels at home, he raps. 
What do you think Arab youth wants? What's up with us? We also want to feel at home. And one more selection before we go today. This is the dreamy rap of the band La Tlate from Damascus, Syria. No exit there from the Arab awakening, not yet anyway. And the opening line of the track, Bouv, says it all. Sprawled I am in the middle of the street. Was in our neighbor's house here yesterday? Yep, dark and succinct. The world comes to you each day from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston. Our theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg. I'm Marco Werman. Glad you could join us. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org. The Carnegie Corporation. The John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. And by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.